0: welcome to who started the fire a podcast all about the 1989 billy joel song we didn't start the fire each episode we're going to be taking a look at the song line by line and giving a brief overview of all of the events that are referenced and a few that aren't as often as possible we're going to be joined by guests who will help us break it down in fun and unique ways we hope you enjoy is episode 19 little rock pasternak mickey mantle kerouac i'm jen
1: and i'm mark let's go all right we're back baby
0: yeah again back, back in the pod studio yeah.
1: after how long
0: <laughs> uh, it's been a minute
1: it's, yeah it's been a little I while i think our last episode was back in october
0: um, something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. It's,
1: it's been a few months.
0: It has been. Well, to be fair, though, we did have a lot of s- things that were happening.
1: Yeah. So. Sorry.
0: Um, yeah. Unfortunately, everything just kind of happened all at the exact same time. Uh, and something had to give. So. Yeah. We had to push pause, but we're back. Mm-hmm. Um, We have, hopefully, a schedule worked out. Um, yeah. To kind of help keep things flowing a little bit more smoothly uh hopefully with fewer interruptions and uh the interruptions that we will experience will hopefully be uh shorter in yeah. length uh because this one was just it was a lot um mark uh was very busy with work and school and then he got um a really big role in one of his dream productions so that yep. kind of took up. <laughs> every waking moment that he had um and i had some some work things happening where just all of a sudden there weren't enough hours in the day to do anything <laughs> yep. so but oh, things well. have
1: slowed down a little bit
0: for now at least
1: enough for uh, us to do this yeah show again so
0: yeah so there is the possibility that we might kind of have to almost take like season breaks yeah. um even though we don't really have seasons um yeah. but just know that like we might occasionally have to take these intermittent breaks that last a little bit of time the same way that some other uh shows will do in between different uh you know like seasons of their show so we hope that you can be understanding um
1: we're doing our best
0: yes we're we're grateful for all of you who've Who've been patiently waiting, so thank you guys. Yeah. (laughs) um, But since you've already waited so long, uh, should we just go ahead and and get going?
1: Let's get into it.
0: Okay. So the events in this episode take place in and around the year 1957. So we're, you know, looking at Little Rock, Pasternak, Mickey Mantle, and Kerouac. And um, a couple of these topics could, in theory, have happened Outside of 1957, but grouped together with everything else, um, it seems likely that this line of the song is meant to represent that year. Yeah. Um, So we're going to start off with Little Rock. Woo! Ah, Don't cheer just yet. Oh, no. Okay, then.
1: Not, ooh.
0: Yeah, ooh. What's the opposite.
1: Yeah, yeah there we go. Yeah, ooh. there we go. There we
0: go. Uh, <laughs> so, Little Rock. Uh, so, September 4th, 1957, nine black students were blocked by the Arkansas National Guard from attending Central High School following the Brown v. Board of Education ruling. Uh, they later were escorted by federal troops into the school on the orders of President Eisenhower.
1: Yeah, like you said. Yeah. Ooh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in... Episode 16, we talked a bit about uh, Rosa Parks um, and um, all of the things that were happening uh, with, you know, the civil rights movement. Uh, We talked a little bit about Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, We talked about the um, Alabama bus boycott. That was actually the, the lyric Uh, In the song was Alabama, uh, and it was referring to that bus boycott that was orchestrated um, to protest segregation. Um, So, all of this is happening very close uh, chronologically uh, to each other. So, Little Rock is only taking place, what, two years, one to two years later. Um, So, a lot of the same things that were influencing. Factors from what we talked about in episode 16 are still things that are influencing um, the way that everything is going down in this episode as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, you know, if you need a quick refresher go listen to that, the Alabama segment in episode 16. You can also just like real quick, hit Google, lots of, um, history out there on the internet for you to, to kind of like brush up or refresh yourself or whatever you may need. So, you know, we, we have these things like Jim Crow laws in place. Um, segregation, uh, is happening. Um, it's, it's a very turbulent time, uh, in the U.S., particularly in the Southern states at this point. So please keep all of those things in mind. Um, so what is the Brown v. Board of Education ruling? Uh, well, that was a Supreme Court hearing, which essentially desegregated schools in 1954. Uh, it was a long road to get it there. Um, you know, most, most things that come before the Supreme Court, they are not, um, something that happened quickly or immediately. There is a lot of, uh, groundwork and, um, context leading up to a Supreme Court ruling. The Supreme Court rejects most of the cases that are brought before it in the U.S. Um, so for it to have even made it to the Supreme Court meant that it was a pretty lengthy process and that there was a lot of effort that went into, um, having the Supreme Court, uh, even hear this. And it's, you know, so that tells you how much these organizers had been working and planning and fighting and just how committed these activists were to trying to, um, Enact these changes. Um, so, the Brown versus Board of uh, Education was brought before the Supreme Court, and in it, the Supreme Court ruled quote We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal." End quote. Um, so, okay. basically, um, prior to the Brown v. Board ruling. We had that um, iconic iconic ruling of Plessy versus Ferguson, which stated that segregation was not a violation of constitutional rights, as long as the facilities that were provided were equal. And that happened in 1896. And despite multiple challenges across the years from various angles and by various um, groups and peoples, it continually was upheld. Until uh, this 1954 Supreme Court ruling, which was unanimous when it said that separate but equal um, just doesn't really apply and that inherently one is going to be better than the other one. And so it's impossible to be separate but equal, especially when talking about something like public school education, uh, which is funded by tax dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, so. hmm. This was a really huge turning point and a milestone decision because it undid a previous Supreme Court ruling, um, and it opened the door for all kinds of things to change and to happen that activists had been working for for a very long time. So Brown versus Board of Education is one of those things that is included in essentially every history class in, in U.S. Yeah. um history curriculums because it was so important in what it did and what it laid the groundwork for. So if you're unfamiliar with Brown v. Board, that's just kind of like the quick rundown on it. Um, But despite this ruling of, you know, separation not being, or segregation uh, not being allowed anymore, uh, the court didn't really have a whole lot of urgency in implementing this, this ruling. Um, They anticipated a lot of pushback, particularly from the South, um, which they received. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They were absolutely right to anticipate uh, that kind of response. There was a lot of pushback, especially from Southern states that had these strong Jim Crow laws in place um, and that were so opposed to modifying or removing uh, those pieces of legislature. Um, So instead of just... Immediately insisting that it be implemented, they directed the attorney generals of all states with public school segregation laws to submit their own plans for desegregation. So basically, the court assumed that it wasn't going to be a one size fits all solution to this problem. Mm. Um, and so instead of coming up with their own take on what the solution could be or should be, they instead decided to involve the attorney generals of all of the states who would be affected by the, the change in the ruling. Um, and they wanted them to put together their own plan based on the laws that were in the books, because in the United States, each state is allowed to create its own legislation. Um, they're all still subject to federal law, but individual states are allowed to have their own laws on the books as well. And mm-hmm. so trying to have everybody do the exact same thing might not work for lots of reasons, depending on how each state had these laws written out. Um, So they wanted everybody to kind of come up with their own plan of action in this regard. And this was something that happened over a very long period of time, lots of hearings. um, And eventually the justices did kind of create like, a a plan or maybe, like, a model for how to proceed with desegregating the public schools. Um, And it was distributed in May of 1955. And once this plan was made available, uh, it also came with the declaration that desegregation was to proceed with, quote, all deliberate speed, unquote. Um, So, again, though, there's no, like, real deadlines, no dates. Um, it's very so vague. it's very vague, yeah, and that gave a lot of wiggle room for people who didn't want to adhere to these changes to say that they they were doing this with all deliberate speed possible in the circumstances, <laughs> when really they weren't doing yeah, anything. They did, um, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in August of 1956, in Clinton, Tennessee, um, a group of 12 students registered to attend. Um, Clinton High School, which had previously been an all-white high school. Um, So typically, segregation, you know, there would be white schools and then schools for everybody else who didn't fit that definition. So it would be predominantly Black, depending on the population, but especially in some areas, you would also find other students of color. So uh, Latinx, Asian, Indigenous peoples often would be denied entry into these white schools as well. Um, And in some communities. Uh, there was a little bit more vitriol about allowing these non-Black people of color into white spaces. And in some communities, it was a little bit more lax about that. So, you know, the the main subject of most people's concern, though, was policing Black communities and the spaces in which they were allowed to occupy um, that doesn't mean that other communities of color were imp- affected um, by these laws, but it there was more variance yeah. depending on where you were. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, so in August of 56, these 12 students who were all black registered to attend the all-white high school, um, Clinton High School in Clinton, Tennessee. Um, white segregationists threatened to block the students from entering the building, um, but on August 26th they were able to attend classes without incident. Um, There were, you know, some issues with the way that they were treated by fellow students and by faculty, Um, but they weren't barred from entering the building. Um, There wasn't necessarily the same kind of pushback or backlash that they had been anticipating and training for. Um, So it went relatively smoothly, all things considered. Yes. Um, But on the second day of classes... Threats of violence started. Uh. Yes. And a restraining order was issued against the leader of um, the person who was really spearheading this segregationist uh, group. Uh, his name was John Casper. Um, and Casper ignored the order um, and he was arrested by US Marshals and he ended up spending a year in jail. Um and then over Labor Day weekend, there was a riot where these white segregationists overturned cars, smashed windows, did all kinds of damage, mm. um, and they even threatened to blow up the mayor's house over all of this. Oh, wow, over twelve kids going to high school. Oh, I know it's insane. Huh. Um the Tennessee governor had to deploy the National Guard in order to um, basically restore order and put a stop to the mob. Um, and despite stopping the riots, threats, uh, you know, the threats and the violence still continued. And it culminated in the school being destroyed by a bomb in 1958. Um, There were no further incidents reported after the school was later rebuilt, though. Um, And so, you know, this happens in 1956 in Tennessee, but we're talking about uh, 1957 in Arkansas so why am I talking about this
1: why are you talking about why this? am I
0: talking about this well because despite the fact that this did culminate in violence it does show that segregation or desegregation was happening and it was happening relatively smoothly I know that that sounds insane seeing as they bombed the school yeah <laughs> uh, two years later but the reality was the problem wasn't the, the students of color who were being introduced into the student population. The fear was that by allowing black and brown students into white schools that they would somehow um, cause these problems and would be, the, be you know, bad influences and uh... would do this, that, and the other thing. Um, clearly they weren't. No. Um, they, they weren't. It was not it was not the students who were newly enrolled in the classes. Yeah. that were the problems. Um, most of it were not people that were involved in the school whatsoever. yeah uh, it was it was people dealing with bigotry <laughs> hmm. through violence. Uh, Imagine that living in other parts of the community. yeah, so you know we can see that this is something that was able to to be accomplished. And actually, in 1957, um, we see some of these students are graduating. Uh, So before Little Rock, we see some students of color able to graduate from all white high schools as a result of desegregation in other areas of the country. Mm -hmm. So Arkansas trying to say that this was going to be a huge problem... There was evidence to support that it wasn't going to be unless they made it one themselves, right. um, and they made it one themselves. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it's the little, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. So in Little Rock, Arkansas, there were nine students who, nine black students, who enrolled in an all-white school. Um, And unlike the the Clinton 12 and some other groups, the Little Rock Nine faced massive amounts of pushback right from the very beginning. Um, So the Clinton 12, they were able to have their first day of school without incident. The Little Rock Nine were literally blocked by the National Guard from walking into the doors of the building. Yes. And the Arkansas governor, Orville Faubus, is the one that called in armed (laughs) Uh, adults to barricade a building from being entered by nine new students. Oh, boy. Yes, yes. Um, and he claims that he did this in order to protect the students. He said that there was the possibility that violence might break out if they were allowed into the building to attend classes. But again, the Clinton Twelve showed us that that couldn't all, or that that wasn't always going to be the response, that it could, in fact, be something that happened relatively smoothly without incident.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so Fabus just didn't want them going into an all-white school yeah. um, for other reasons. Uh, and hmm. it had nothing to do with the safety of these nine black students. Yeah, um, And he absolutely refused to allow the students to enter the building. And he wouldn't back down from this position To the point where the president of the United States had to intervene. He sent in federal troops to remove the Arkansas National Guard.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And to escort these nine teenagers into a building so that they could attend classes.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. That's terrible.
0: (laughs) Such, Such a massive escalation. Such a massive escalation. And for the most part once they were allowed to attend school, things went okay. You know, there, yeah. it wasn't smooth sailing. It wasn't like everybody was immediately friends. There were tensions and there were problems and there were issues that they had to face day after day. But once they, once they were allowed into the building, <laughs> um, it started going a lot easier. So again, it wasn't the problem that the students were in the building. It was the people who weren't even involved in the school community itself.
1: Making it a problem. Making it a problem. Yeah.
0: And because of the way that Governor Faubus reacted um, to and the fact that he just kept digging in and doubling down to the point where it involved federal troops being ordered by the president of the United States uh, to allow nine students into a high school. It literally um, meant that all eyes were on the Little Rock Nine. Uh, It became international news. There are iconic photographs of these young, very brave teenagers walking into this building um, with all of these awful people on the sidelines that are throwing things at them and spitting at them and screaming obscenities at them. Um, And it. It's one of those things. It was yet another turning point in the history of the United States during a very turbulent period. It was a a major step in the uh, civil rights movement. And, you know, I'm not going to go too much further into the rest of that and all of the things that this opened up because this is all covered at other points in the song. So this is another chapter in the ongoing story of the civil rights movement in the United States during the 50s and the 60s. And we are absolutely going to be circling back to it again later. So
1: stay stay tuned. So
0: stay tuned. Um,
1: We will circle back.
0: (laughs) Yes. Most of it is going to also have the same amount of like high drama and high stakes. So (laughs) just buckle up. (laughs) We
1: will circle back again and again and again. (laughs) Yes. So
0: overall, uh, that is just like the really quick... Um, I know it's probably not super quick, but that is kind of like the overview of the Little Rock Nine and all of the things that they faced um, and the um, ridiculous behaviors (laughs) that they had to deal with. Uh, So before we completely wrap this segment up, though, I just want to take a quick moment to say the names of those very brave nine students. Um, And they were uh, Melba Beals, Minnie Jean Brown, Ernest Green, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Carlotta Walls Lanier, Thelma Mothershed, Terrence Roberts, Jefferson Thomas, and Elizabeth Eckford. Uh, and if you Google the little, little Rock Nine, you'll probably find this very iconic photo of a single teenage girl uh, who is walking through a, a column of screaming people. Um, And that is Elizabeth Eckford. And she unfortunately missed the carpool that morning. Uh, And so the other 11 students all walked in together in a group. And because she was late, she had to face that crowd by herself. Yes. But she did it with poise and grace and dignity. Yeah. Yes. Um, And uh, that is the Little Rock Nine and the story of their... (laughs) very um, historic first day at Central High School
1: so how do we follow that up?
0: Um, Well, the next line in the song is Pasternak.
1: Pasternak?
0: Pasternak. Have you ever heard of uh, Boris Pasternak? No. What about his um, Nobel Prize winning novel, Dr. Zhivago? No. Okay. Well, that's what this (laughs) reference is. Uh, Pasternak in the song most likely is referring to um, the fact that Russian author Boris Pasternak's Nobel Prize-winning novel, Dr. Zhivago, was published in
1: 1957. Hmm. Yes. Yep, um, never heard of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it. I, I had heard of it um, just kind of, like, briefly and in passing. I would see it, you know, maybe on, like, lists of books you should read before you die, um, yeah. those kinds of things. I think it was on um, a list of, like extra credit reading for some of my like ap english classes in high school and stuff um but i i ended up pecking other books on the list instead of dr Zhivago. yeah um but it sounds like it's actually a very interesting story um and it was fascinating doing the research to this. I fell down an awful lot of rabbit holes. <laughs> What's um, new? I know, on this one. <laughs> not least of all because um, there is a, a portion of the novel that takes place in the Ural Mountains, which is where the Diet Love Pass incident happened. And, like, that's a whole other thing. Um, it's a bizarre bizarre thing that happened it's still not (laughs) fully understood that's a whole nother thing like we don't have enough time in this episode for me to talk about the diet love pass incident but believe me i want to google it google it um diet
1: love pass
0: diet love yep Uh, d-y-a-t-l-o-v it's named after one of the people um who died yes yep so if you're interested in the diet love pass incident um if if your curiosity has been um, peaked please know though that there is a lot of um graphic things that happened um and that there were no survivors um so it's 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 not the donner party uh that's that's different okay
1: I think I think I know what you're talking about. But okay,
0: yes. So, not, yeah. yes, if you're interested and you're curious about it and you have the stomach for it, look it up. It's fascinating. Um, the last podcast on the left in particular does like a three-part three deep dive into it, which is just phenomenal. But again, some of the things are a little on the graphic side. So yeah. <laughs> know what you're getting into on this one. Um, but uh, there is... No actual connection to the Diet Love Pass incident um, with Dr. Zhivago or Boris Pasternak. Um, so no worries. We don't need a trigger warning for that particular uh, issue <laughs> in here. It just sent me down uh, so many rabbit holes uh, because there was the thinnest connection possible. <laughs> um But now that we've gone down that tangent, let me tell you a little bit about Boris Pasternak and his novel. Okay. Okay. So the novel explores the very complicated love life of a young man during the Russian Revolution and World War I. Um, The story itself spans approximately 40 years. Um, So it it really has a lot of content to it. Um, And just so that, like, your dates are... uh, your timelines in your head are, uh, where they need to be. Uh, World War One began on July 14th of 1914 with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Um, and it, uh, continued until November 11th of 1918 when the armistices were signed. Um, so during that four-ish years um, that World War I spanned, the Russian Civil War was also occurring. So that war began in November, according to the Gregorian calendar in 1917. Um, and it's typically considered to have uh, concluded on October 25th of 1922. So remember, at this particular point in history, uh, Russia was using a different calendar. Yeah. He, they were using the Gregorian calendar as opposed to the rest of the world, which is using the Julian calendar. So sometimes you'll see that those dates are a little bit different depending on whether the source is um, making that change from Gregorian over to Julian. Um, right. But it spanned approximately the last year of World War One, and then continued from that point on. So the Russian people experienced... A prolonged period of war yeah, from 1914 until 1922-ish. Yeah. Yeah, So that's a lot. (laughs) Um, And the main character is named Yuri. He's raised by an aunt and an uncle after the death of his parents while he was still a child. uh, He goes to medical school. And while he's there, he meets Tanya, who he uh, marries and has a child with. Um, A few years later, he becomes a medical officer in the army um, and he's stationed in a small town away from his family as a result of that. While he's in this small town um, where he's stationed with his military service, um, he meets a woman named Lara and she's married to a a man who is also a soldier um, and he's missing in action. Um, And she also has a, a small child. She has a daughter um, and Yuri becomes infatuated with Lara, um, almost immediately from the time that he, he first, uh, sees her. Um, but he is ordered back to Moscow, um, after some time. Um, and that's where his family is living. So he's taken away from his family. He meets this woman he becomes infatuated with shortly after meeting her. Uh, he goes back home to his wife and child. okay Okay. um during this time his wife tanya and their son have been struggling just to survive um they're having a hard time you know making men's ends meet um paying the bills buying food which is pretty common Mm -hmm. um for you know most people during this time frame especially living in europe where the fighting is uh you know predominantly happening right um and having yuri come back home um they're hopeful that it will make things better, but it doesn't actually seem to improve the situation whatsoever. So there is just this added tension and strain that t- comes along with living in poverty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the family, you know, they decide to to move. Uh, things aren't working out so great for them in Moscow. And so they decide to move to an estate that had previously been owned by Tanya's grandfather. Um, but it has now become a collective. So, you know, this is during, like, the Bolshevik revolutions, and, and, you know, this is when things are just kind of, like, there's a lot of upheaval in how Russian uh, society is structured. Um, So there used to be, like, large land estates that used to belong to, um, like, wealthy aristocratic families, um, and they have now been seized and turned into Like farming co-ops that are supposed to be more equitable and accessible for people who live in the lower social classes. Uh, So there's a ton of societal upheaval um, that's happening here. Um, That is a whole lot of stuff going on. Besides all of this, like, if you've ever seen Dr. Zhivago, it's a really thick book. Okay. Um, and I'm pretty sure that it's because it's giving all of this kind of context that you really need to have to understand what living in Russia was like at this point <laughs> in time, because a lot happened. Um, but anyway, they moved to this collective. Um, and the, the family's quality of life does seem to improve. And uh, because Yuri is a doctor, um, sometimes he is uh, called away from the collective to other areas nearby. It's a relatively rural community, and so um, he kind of acts as a doctor for a large area um, just because there isn't a ton of medical care available. So during one of these times, he's called um, to a nearby small city. And while he's in this nearby city, he realizes that they have a library. And so he starts using that library. Um, I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> and while he's at this library, that's where he sees Lara again. Um, so they've kind of found each other hmm. um, again. And this time, it's not just an infatuation. They start an affair Um and after a few months of this, uh, he decides to end things uh, because he's just consumed with guilt. He feels awful about all of the the sneaking around and the lying and the everything. Um, so he ends things with Lara and he decides that he's going to confess everything to his wife. Um, but while he is traveling back from this city to the Collective, he is captured <laughs> oh. by a division of the Communist Partisan Army um and he is compelled to serve as a medical officer for them during the revolution because again this is happening um like simultaneously and immediately after world war 2 so or world war 1 excuse me yeah. so he was a medical army officer for world war 1 um he's still a, a medical professional with a military background Uh, He seems to have mostly kept out of the revolution uh, and the civil war fighting, uh, but he has been captured by one of the groups Hmm. engaging in it. Um, And he's now going to become their medical (laughs) officer. (laughs) Uh, So he's he's captured and he serves until the end of the revolution. Once it's over, Yuri is allowed to leave the army. um, And instead of going back to his wife, he decides that he's going to find Lara again. Uh, so he was—he ended things with her and was going to tell his wife everything. Never got the chance, and now he wants Lara back. Interesting. Uh, very complicated love life. Yeah. <laughs> very complicated love life. Um, during the conflict, um, his wife Tanya and his son—they uh, basically had been exiled to Paris for their own safety. And he tricks Lara into fleeing Russia. For her own safety as well. And he stays behind. And he had to trick her because they were apparently so in love that she refused to leave him. Uh, and so he basically told her, like, nah, I'll be right behind you. I just got to tidy up some things here first. And then mm. he just never had any intention of going. huh. Yeah, so uh, this part was a little confusing to me in the research, and I didn't actually read Dr. Zhivago yet. It is on my TBR now, though. <laughs> um, so this was a little bit muddled. I don't 100% understand this part of the plot line, so I'm doing my best. Hopefully, I kind of get it. Um, but basically, so now uh, both the women in his life are no longer in Russia, and he still is. Um, and years later, he begins a new life uh, with Marina yet another woman oh. <laughs> um and he doesn't see either tanya or lara ever again uh so he en- uh, lives to the end of his days with marina while tanya is in paris and lara is uh, nobody knows where outside of russia somewhere um
1: <laughs> so uh happy marriage
0: <laughs> i don't know maybe the third time's the charm <laughs> the here time. i don't know um and then there is this kind of like I don't know if it's a riddle or like a thing, but uh, there's this uh, young girl uh, who shows up towards the end of the book, and you're not entirely sure if it's his daughter or not, but maybe it is. Oh. um Yeah, so like that was a whole other like sci- story, like thing, and I was just like, ah, this is already a very convoluted summary, so we'll just throw that in as a quick shout out. I don't know if she <laughs> was his daughter or not maybe i don't know if she was lara's daughter or marina's daughter or tanya's daughter who knows <laughs> <laughs> um but that's basically the story of dr jivago right. it ends with um him not seeing tanya or lara ever again um and ending closing out the the story of his life with uh marina
1: well, if you have any further information about this book yeah, go ahead just and write email us. Email us at uh Who, who started, started The, the Fire, fire pod, pod at gmail.com and maybe we'll cover it on our next chorus <laughs> break yes. episode.
0: Yes, because I do intend to read the book, but probably not uh before the next chorus break. We'll see. I don't know. Um but at any rate, parts of this novel were actually inspired by people and events from Pasternak's life. Oh. Uh, apparently, he had a real messy life because <laughs> this was <laughs> okay. a real messy story. Like, what are you doing, dude? Hmm. Um, but he had some sub- similar experiences of loss and of turbulence during the revolution. Um, and Lara is at least partly inspired by his real life mistress named Olga. Um, and after writing this novel, he applied to have it published, but he was denied by the Russian authorities. Um, he, however, believed that his book deserved to be read. He thought that it was the best thing that he had ever created, and he really, really wanted to to publish it. Um, and so he secretly gave a copy of his manuscript to a representative from an Italian publishing company oh. who was just, like, visiting The country, like he found out about it, and and secretly gave him a copy of Doctor Zhivago, and reportedly told this representative, "quote You are hereby invited to my execution." Unquote. When he handed him the manuscript, because defying Russian authorities could have culminated Mm. in death. Yeah. I mean, do you remember when we talked about the the yeah. secret speech? Oh, man, <laughs> we we learned a lot of things. We learned a lot of things about Russia in the 50s. Yeah. Um so he really was taking a huge risk in defying the Russian authorities and trying to get his book published after they said that they weren't going to allow it. Um and the book was published. Uh, it was translated and published despite the anger of Russian authorities. Um, and there was even this, like, wild, um, wild thing where the CIA collaborated with a Dutch publisher um, and they arranged for the distribution of thousands of Russian language copies of the book. Uh, oh. Yes. So they, they, tra- they translated it, or not translated, they, they published it in the original Russian, um, yeah. because it, it, when it was first being published, it w- it, it was translated into other languages, um, and then the CIA was like, you know, who needs to read this? <laughs> the Russian people. So they published. They worked together with a Dutch publishing company <laughs> to publish the Russian language version of Doctor Zhivago, and to discreetly distribute the book. Russian nationals at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair um, that way they could smuggle it back to Mother Russia and allow Russian citizens to read the book that the Russian authorities did not want them to read hmm. yes um, and again thousands of copies <laughs> <laughs> discreetly smuggled into the country as a a collaboration of two different governments
1: wow yes isn't
0: that so wild <laughs> um yeah so that was like absolutely crazy but it was apparently very popular in russia
1: no oh, okay yeah well. uh and
0: uh people did everything that they could to keep it on the down low uh and it was you know allegedly like taken apart so you would have to like only get segments of it so that way It Mm. was easier to share, um, and people would, like, hide it in the linings of clothing or in suitcases, and, like, you would get the first installment, and then you would pass it on to the next person, and then you'd have to go get the next installment. Mm. It was very covert. Uh, Yeah, just wild. Um, And apparently Olga, um, Pasternak's mistress, she worked as a translator and an editor, um, and she worked on Dr. Zhivago and was imprisoned for it and was later and was sent to a labor camp on more than one occasion. She was huh. repeatedly arrested and sent to labor camps and gulags. And ultimately, this book won a Nobel Prize in 1957. Um, but Pasternak, Boris Pasternak, was forced to uh, decline or reject the, the Nobel Prize under threat of deportation by russian authorities they would not allow him to accept the nobel prize for his all his novel wow yeah and uh olga ended up back in prison again for her contributions to the book um after it, he declined the nobel prize she was put back into prison um and pasternak and his wife because olga was his mistress not his wife um pasternak and his wife died penniless despite the fact that his novel was a worldwide bestseller wow yes so boris pasternak died in 1960 um it looks like he had been married twice i couldn't find any information about his first wife other than the fact that he had been married and divorced. Okay. Um, so his second wife, named Zenida she died in approximately 1966. The historical record is a little bit fuzzy about that. Um, and then Olga lived until 1989.
1: So Olga was meant to be the third wife we lived out the rest of his days with?
0: Uh, maybe. Well, Lar- Lara was <laughs> based on Olga.
1: Yeah. Oh, oh.
0: So, uh, you know, I don't know. But she, she outlived Pasternak and his second wife, um and there was like this whole other rabbit hole that I started to go down, but I stopped myself because it was going to be a whole other thing. But there was a lawsuit involving like copies of Dr. Zhivago and royalties of it. And should it go to, um, uh, Pasternak's, uh, children or should it go to Olga? Should it be split between them? Uh, does, does the Russian authorities get any of this? Like, I started to fall down the rabbit hole, um, but I realized how late it was getting and I closed my browser. (laughs) So I don't know how that was resolved. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so if you have any more, any more information, yeah, yeah, email this, us.
0: This whole thing was absolutely <laughs> fascinating from start to finish. There's a film adaptation of Dr. Zhivago, uh, which uh, apparently was really well-received, oh. um, and I would love to give it a watch sometime. Maybe that would clear up some of the like confusion, because this is a very complex, complicated plot line involving lots of characters. Yeah. Um, so... At some point, we're gonna have to watch Doctor Zhivago. It is also on my TBR list now. Wow. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. I I really had only heard of it in passing before, but um, now I really want to see all of like learn more about it.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, that is a Pasternak. Okay. Yeah.
1: All right, so now for one of our favorite topics, mm, mm-hmm. and apparently one of Billy Joel's favorite topics. He
0: really did love this topic, yes.
1: Some baseball.
0: Indeed. Um, yeah, I still, I still am not super great <laughs> uh, at reading baseball stats. It's still not something I'm all that interested in. Um, so our next topic, and probably our shortest segment, is Mickey Mantle.
1: Mickey Mantle.
0: Mickey Mantle. Um, So again, these events take place in or around 1957. So Mickey Mantle in 1957, um, he was a famous New York Yankees player and he was voted MVP for the second of three times during the course of his career in
1: 1957. Okay. Yes. And that's it. (laughs)
0: All right, moving on. Uh, Well, I'll give you a little bit more um, because this is the first time that we talk about Mickey Mantle uh, in the song. And he was a very, very famous uh, Yankee player. So, you know, baseball fans know and love him um people who are into collecting like sports memorabilia uh him. his his baseball card is worth quite a lot of money Mm -hmm. if you can find it from his rookie season in particular um so we'll we'll give like a a brief rundown of who mickey mantle is i am not going to talk a ton about his uh professional career because again not not super great at deciphering yeah. <laughs> that information. Um, so Mickey Mantle was born in Spavanaugh, Oklahoma, on October 20th of 1931. Uh, and his full name is Mickey Charles Mantle. Uh, he was actually named after another famous baseball player. His father was apparently a massive baseball fan and named his son after the Detroit Tigers catcher, Mickey Cochrane. So it was kind of destined for him to be (laughs) uh, in baseball. Um, And his father's love of the game clearly shaped his childhood. uh, And Mantle was taught to be a switch hitter from a very young age. Um, And in high school, a scout for the Yankees saw him playing and offered to sign him into the minors. So he was quite young when all of this started for him. Yeah, High school. High school age. Yeah. Um, And two years later, at the age of 19, he was already playing in the major league. Wow. Um, So he was incredibly young um, when he started playing professionally. He was 17 years old when he was signed into the minors, out of high school, um, and then 19 when he started with the majors. Wow. So yeah, and he was signed immediately into the Yankees. Like he didn't get traded. Um, he didn't start out with like a smaller local team in a, like a smaller rated league and have to work his way up the way that some other players do. Uh, he just like went for it. Yeah. Just like <laughs> zero to a hundred, man, for this guy. Um, and his first game with the Yankees was in 1951, uh, and he would continue playing with the team for 18 years before he retired in 1969. Wow. Um and he took over playing center field when uh Joe Dimaggio left in fifty two um oh well yeah so he he played with he was a big name in the game and he played with big names in the game too um and he would hit a total of five hundred and thirty six home runs over the life of his career. Um, And as mentioned at the beginning of the segment, he would be voted MVP three times um, in 1956, 1957, and again in 1962. Um, And he also won the American League Triple Crown in 1956. So 1956 was an eventful year for him. Yeah. And many say that 1956 was actually his best season. So that might be what this... uh, lyric is referencing is his 1956 season as opposed to his 1957 um but it's a little bit hard to say it it could be either it could be both it could just be in general yeah (laughs) it's hard to say um sometimes the chronology of this song is a little loosey-goosey so you know 56 57 ish yeah
1: the words rhyme so we'll fit it in there
0: exactly yes (laughs) so sometime in the in those mid-1950s mickey mantle uh was worth commemorating okay uh yes (laughs) um and he was inducted into the baseball hall of fame in 1974 all right yeah um and he was diagnosed in 1994 he was diagnosed with an alcohol-related liver disease including cirrhosis hepatitis and liver cancer yeah so he lived a hard life yeah um and he received a liver pl- transplant a year later in 1995, uh, but he died of a heart attack shortly after the transplant was completed, uh. um, which probably was also related to alcohol. Um, alcohol has a massive effect on the entire body. Um, mm-hmm. So even though the liver was probably the main culprit of his health issues, it certainly wasn't the only thing that had been impacted by those lifestyle choices. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he... he he lived a an impressive life um he is an iconic uh baseball player um and we we know that billy joel loves his baseball (laughs) (laughs) so that's mickey mantle all right oh and because i was curious i just did a a quick google search um for how much a, a mickey mantle rookie card is worth um a lot it's a lot it's a lot, a lot. Do you want to take a guess?
1: Uh, One million dollars.
0: You're not wrong. Oh. Uh, So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So according to Sports Cards Rock, uh, there are two potential rookie cards that are considered by collectors uh, to be a Mickey Mantle rookie card. One is from 1951, and that card typically values between $2,000 and a million dollars or more depending on condition um and then there is also the 1952 card for mickey mantle um it looks like these were released by different um publishing companies that's why there's two different cards um but the 1952 one values between five thousand dollars and over two million dollars um again yeah right um and according to MLB.com, <laughs> there was a Mickey Mantle baseball card that sold for the record setting price of $12.6 million. Yeah. $12.6 million. Uh, Dollars. Um, and this was one of those 1952 um, cards. Um,
1: for a card.
0: Yes. E- yep. Yep yep uh and the article was written in august 28th of 2022 so very recently this card sold for that amount of money yeah so um just in case you were curious the way that i was (laughs) okay yeah so yep that uh i think that's gonna wrap it up for us okay okay (laughs)
1: Okay, last up, we have...
0: Kerouac.
1: Ker- oh, Kerouac.
0: Yes, yes, Kerouac. You heard, <sighs> yes, uh, Mark heard me complaining a lot during the research of Kerouac.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: <laughs> All right. We,
1: we we're also in the middle of watching uh, Quantum Leap, and we yes saw an episode with Kerouac.
0: Kerouac. Yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah.
1: If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking uh-huh,
0: about. Uh-huh. He was insufferable in that. Uh, <laughs> but he seems insufferable just in general. So <laughs> seems like they really captured his character. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 1957, um, author Jack Kerouac publishes his famous work, On the Road, uh, on September 5th of 1957. And that's it. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> All
1: right. It's been fun <laughs> see you next week uh, you
0: know what no if i had to suffer <laughs> you guys get to suffer with me it's fine all right so i know that you had to deal with uh me griping and oh, yeah. complaining uh but other than those outbursts do you know anything about jack kerouac or um his book on the road uh yeah yeah probably some like just, pop culture references yeah, yeah yeah yep they're all over the place um so if you watch uh third rock from the sun there's like a couple of episodes where one of the characters becomes obsessed uh, with the book um and there's a ton of references there that happens pretty often there's a lot of like tv shows or even movies where there's like a character who is particularly um infatuated
1: you see that character with the uh, beret and the yes. bongos yes. and the yes. black clothes yes
0: so there's there's quite a lot of like <laughs> pop culture references that like you might not know their references to kerouac and on the road but you're probably uh pretty familiar with them so jack kerouac was born march 12th of 1922 in lowell massachusetts um and his given name was actually jean-louis de Brie de kerouac um, so he was, a uh, French Canadian, um, and the family, his family, the town that they lived in, um, all of, all of this community, they were all French Canadian and his first language was the French Canadian dialect of Joual, uh, as opposed to English.
1: Hmm.
0: Yes. So English was his second language. Um, and he attended Columbia, um, uh, you know, after he finished, uh, High School in Lowell, he attended Columbia University, um, and it was there that he would meet lifelong friends, Neil Cassidy, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. Um, And together, these four men would help to create a literary style and a subculture. Beat.
1: The Beats.
0: Yep, the Beats. Um, You'll often sometimes hear them referred to as Beat Nicks, um, but this was not something that they called themselves. This was something that they were um, derivatively called by other people outside of the subculture
1: yeah
0: um so originally beat was meant to express that they were tired of dominant or square culture um and later beat was redefined to incorporate uh quote the sense of converting alienation into spiritual transcendence unquote uh and that was how it was explained by uh i saw it a couple different times from william s burroughs i also saw alan Ginsberg give something very similar Uh, in some of the reading, so it sounds like that was something that maybe they kind of like collaboratively came up with as an explanation and then they they used it to explain it Um, and according to britannica this free-form semi-autobiography on the road was written by kerouac over the course of three weeks oh Um, so very quickly written yeah Um, and the author himself says that he experienced a a burst of benzendrine and caffeine-fueled creativity that prompted him to write the first draft on a single scroll of paper that was 50 feet long. Hmm. Yes, he um, he made the scroll himself by taping together 12-foot-long sheets of tracing or drawing paper and then using those in his uh, typewriter. Oh. Um, and he would just, like, write continuously. in over the course of this three weeks of Benzedrine and caffeine fuels (laughs) insanity um, slash creativity. Um, (laughs) And the first draft is often referred to simply as the scroll for obvious reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, because it literally is a scroll. Oh yeah. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it did go through a little bit of editing, but uh, a lot of it was just kind of left the way that it had initially been written. Um, And the story is this free-form, again, semi-autobiographical novel um, that follows uh, these two friends who go on adventures drifting across the U.S. Um, So the characters were Dean Moriarty and Sal Paradise. And uh, Dean Moriarty was based on uh Kerouac's real life friend Neil Cassidy, who was one of the the people that was super formative in the creation of beat culture, right? Um and Sal Paradise is is based on himself. And these two characters would travel across North America crisscrossing back and forth on various road trip adventures. Um, they spent several years drifting around, um, mostly in the US, but also in parts of Mexico. Um and that's true for Kerouac and and Cassidy, as well as the fictional characters that were based on them. They actually did drift around the U.S. and parts of Mexico for several years. Um, And he lifted a lot of their real-life experiences and put them right into On the Road. Um, Mm. So that's why it's considered semi-autobiographical. He changed certain uh things about the characters themselves and he kind of like blended several real life people into like one fictional person um and he invented some things so that there was a little bit of a plot going on um between some of the characters uh but some of this was actually just like copied and pasted out of his real life Hmm. so it's considered semi-autobiographical as a result of that um and most of the characters that he wrote about in the book are based on people from his life um and or that he met during his adventures. Okay.
1: Um
0: yes. And one of the most noticeable uh features of the book itself is the way that it's written. Um he kind of uses this stream of consciousness uh style of writing um and it's sometimes it's kind of rambling and you know like weird, incoherent, run-on sentences, and then other times it's very poetic. Um it's just kind of all over the board. It definitely seems like something that was written by somebody in a drug field haze over three <laughs> weeks on a single piece of paper. Okay. Uh, like, if you had to picture a book that fits that description, this is going to be it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. So in the book, we have, um, again, several of the characters are based on real-life people. So Allen Ginsberg is carlo Karl- marx not Karl marx carlo marx in the book um and william s burroughs is um old bull lee and in the book he's described not only as a traveler and a writer but also as a junkie which i can't imagine william s burroughs was super duper thrilled about being called yeah. <laughs> i don't know if he had a drug problem in real life or not but i imagine being called a junkie by his good friend in an incredibly popular piece of literature probably kind of stung. Uh, yeah so if if you were wondering like you know neil cassidy is dean moriarty who who were the other people that's who they are in the book so um but all four of these these people they were at the center of what it really meant to be beat um and on the road was a huge part of the creation and the shaping of that beat subculture. So, even though um, William S. Burroughs and uh, Allen Ginsberg um, and Neil Cassidy were instrumental in this movement and in the creation of this subculture, it really was Jack Kerouac's novel that just kind of like springboarded it. Yeah. So, the four men are often considered like at the heart of beat subculture um, and, uh, anything that's considered to be beat, literature, poetry, music, whatever, it really all comes back to On the Road with Jack Kerouac. Um, and he was, you know, the writer, uh, Kerouac and his novel, they were celebrated and they were, and embraced by many, particularly, um, younger people who just kind of felt, um, maybe a little bit restless or a mm-hmm. little bit of a ad- adrift. He spoke to that part of them because in this book, he just has this like wanderlust, this restlessness, this urge to do something different, to 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 buck societal norms and to to not fit neatly into the box. Yeah, uh, and that was something that really resonated with a lot of people of the time, particularly younger people who just kind of felt disconnected from. Um, the way that previous generations saw the world and, you know, maybe didn't feel like they fit into that society. Um, so it really spoke to that and it was embraced by a lot of people, but it was also, uh, something that garnered a ton of criticism. Um, there were a lot of people that really looked down on, uh, Kerouac and his friends and this book and the whole subculture and the whole movement. Um, you know, some critics of the book called it crass and uncouth. Um, there definitely are some depictions in there of violence and of sex and of drug use and things like that. And so it really wasn't something that, um, a lot of people were super, Open to, or you know, really understood the appeal of. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were people that were calling it, you know, crass and 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 all of these things. Um, and Truman Capote, <laughs> he famously said of Kerouac's very frantic writing style um, that the book quote uh, that isn't writing, it's typing unquote. <laughs> <laughs> Just so much disdain in so few words. <laughs>
1: <laughs> totally different.
0: Yes. Um, but despite, you know, the um, criticism and the people that didn't really understand it, On the Road was an incredibly popular book. Um, it's uh, in some places and by some people it's hailed as a literary masterpiece because of the way that it's written and the stream of consciousness prose that uh, Kerouac uses in it um, people will talk about how it is this invaluable insight into the youth of America at the time um, there's there's all kinds of things where people are applauding it for what it is um, despite you know maybe some some shortcomings or some some problems with the way that it was. Uh, written or put together. Mm-hmm. Um and it is uh still to this day a relatively popular book. It seems to be falling off in popularity though. Yeah. Um when I kind of was going through the Goodreads reviews of it, um, a lot of the people who gave it um high reviews, like four and five star reviews, um, were people who had read it quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, or who were, um, you know, maybe of a certain age group or generation, um, and then there were people who had read it more recently or who were younger who just kind of didn't really see the same things in it. Yeah. Um, possibly just because of how much our society has changed in the years, you know, there's been a huge change in, uh, in the way that we, uh, see everything. Oh, yeah. With the rise of the internet and technology, it really has changed the way that we, um think and feel. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, maybe it's not quite as um profound uh in a modern way. Yeah uh, that it was previously. Um but it's it's still a, a very famous book. Um and you know, it it launched and shaped this culture of of beat um and ultimately you know we see portrayals of beats and of beatniks in all kinds of popular culture like you said the the people wearing the berets and the black turtlenecks playing bongo drums mm-hmm. uh is like a very stereotypical portrayal of somebody who is you know maybe beatnik mm-hmm. which again was a, a derivative of beat and, and it was what people who were critical of those who lived the beat lifestyle uh that was what they would call them instead instead of calling them beats they called them beatniks i don't know why i couldn't find an explanation Hmm. but um apparently that was a way to tell like if you were a beat or if you were a phony was (laughs) if you said beat or you're a poser yes well at the time the (laughs) word was phony but yes um and i and i fell down so many rabbit holes of trying to like get a good understanding of like beat and how to like uh, explain it um and there aren't any um (laughs) when you try to look it up you get these maddening passages that talk all about it um but don't ever actually say anything so if you're not sure what it is to be beat or beatnik um same (laughs) (laughs) yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't really find a whole lot of, like, actual information that actually said anything. Most of it was was just a bunch of words.
1: If you have any insight, please email us. No, at, please
0: don't. <laughs> please don't email us at <laughs> youstartofthefirepod at
1: gmail.com.
0: Um, yes. In fact, one of the <laughs> phrases when I was trying to find, like, an example of what it is to be beat one of the quotes that i found from Allen ginsburg was this quote there is not beat poetry or a beat novel or beat painting beat is a poetic conception an attitude towards the world unquote i don't know man
1: i have a beat attitude
0: do you <laughs>
1: <laughs> i have no idea what's a beat attitude
0: <laughs> yeah i i don't know um like there there's a in the sources i'll i'll you know put it obviously cuz we put all of our sources in the show notes but there is a website called com. um and it's all about what it is to be beat and it's maddening it's maddening um there's a lot there's so much and it says so little um so I don't know if you if you're still curious about what it is to be beat, you're more than welcome to try to figure that out on your own. Um, uh-huh. In the meanwhile, I'm going to wrap up our segment of Kerouac by saying that he died in 1969 at the age of 47 from abdominal hemorrhaging caused by alcoholism. Hmm. Yeah, so he didn't live very long. He did see um, some of the success of his book because it was an almost overnight success, um, particularly within that subculture that was forming around him and his friends.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, But he didn't really get to see, like, how long-lasting the impact was going to be of his novel. Yeah. And he did write some other things, um, but none of them were as impactful as On the Road. Interesting. Yes, so that is Kerouac. All right yep that wraps us up
1: yeah and uh hopefully you guys don't have to wait so long for our next episode (laughs) yep i'm
0: i'm already doing the research on the next episode um and mark's schedule has freed up significantly oh yeah um as has mine so we should be able to get back into the um the pod lab uh without too much delay um We'll, we'll try to do it within the next two weeks because that was what we had hoped um, yeah. to to do as far as the schedule. So we're, we're going to do our best to try to adhere to it. Um, we do apologize if sometimes maybe it's three weeks instead of two, but uh, we're doing what we can with what we're able to. And, we're um, doing our best. We are, yes. We're grateful <laughs> for those of you who have stuck around. Um, and uh, if you fell off waiting for us, we understand, but we hope that you'll yeah. come back sometime.
1: Yeah. So. Come give us another listen.
0: Yeah. Yep. So we're going to post this as soon as we possibly can. Um, We appreciate you guys. uh, And we will uh, see you the next time. Uh, And we're going to be talking uh, about some more very interesting things. Um, Hopefully not quite as complicated, though, because some of these topics were very convoluted. Yeah. It was... (laughs) It was a lot. It was a lot. Um, it's a lot
1: of, uh, I don't have all the information. There was a lot of that. So, so yes. Let the, us know what you know. <laughs> yes.
0: The next one should be a little bit more straightforward in the research, hopefully. Uh, so, we will see you again for the next episode. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yep.
1: Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it. It really helps us out. Our sources are in the show notes. And if you'd like to reach out to us about this or any other episode, drop a line to Who pod at gmail.com. Want to help support the show? You can find a listener support link in the show page. We really appreciate your generosity. We hope you'll join us again next week for the next Lyric.